Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Period Chats podcast. On this podcast, we examine how the period stigma, along with various other stigmas, have impacted women administrators' health throughout the years. My name is Kate, and I'll be your host, along with many other amazing guests. I'm a registered dietitian with a master's degree in human clinical nutrition. I'm also the founder of Funkit Wellness, a menstrual health company. So if you're ready to learn more about yourself, your cycle, and the world, tune in and let us know what you think. This podcast is brought to you by Funkit Wellness. Check out their seed cycling kits on www.funkitwellness.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Period Chats podcast. I'm so excited. We have Hannah Mule here and she's actually a dietitian and a PA or physician's assistant. So we're going to jump into that because we've never had that combination on the podcast. So Hannah, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Actually, is it called a physician assistant or a physician's associate because they just changed it where I am? Yeah. So they changed it nationally to physician associate. However, I have to like nobody in my actual place of work has called me a physician associate and I still call myself a physician assistant. So either would be fine. I said it and then I'm like, wait, I think they just changed it. Yeah. Either is fine. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, tell us about yourself. We're so excited to get to know you better on this episode. Sure. So my name is Hannah. Um, like Katie said, I am a dietitian and a physician assistant. Um, I am the voice behind the conscious nutritionist online which is sort of a PCOS and hormone health based um, social platform to talk about all that sort of stuff. I myself also have PCOS, so I come at it with a nice area of personal expertise. And then also I have, you know, my background as a dietitian and a physician assistant to kind of bring in medical to everything I talk about. So that's one thing I pride myself on most. I, you know, you really won't find much on my channel that I promote that doesn't have some sort of scientific background. Yeah. And that's why, honestly, I personally have followed your channel for a long time. I mean, probably about like two years and, or yeah, right around then. And what I loved about it being an RD as well is like, you do come at it with a very well-rounded mindset. So if you guys are on Instagram and TikTok, Conscious Nutritionist is 10 out of 10 content that you can actually trust, which is great. Um, Okay. So we talk a lot about PCOS on this podcast. Um, a lot of people in my personal life have it. A lot of people um, in our Funkit community have PCOS. And so it can be really frustrating to get a diagnosis. And then even after you get the diagnosis to get accurate diet and lifestyle information. So would you just share with us a little bit about your personal journey of finding out you have PCOS and kind of what your next steps were? Sure. So looking back on my youth and growing up, I definitely always had symptoms of PCOS manifesting pretty much from when I started having periods. I never really had a regular cycle. I started having like very bad acne at the age of nine. So I always had these symptoms. Um, But as part of an acne treatment plan, I went on Accutane when I was 15. And if you know anything about Accutane, you have to be on some sort of birth control for that. So I started the pill early Um, and the Accutane, of course, being a very strong medicine for acne, took care of the acne. I was on the birth control pill. So for the late teen years, I think those symptoms of PCOS were sort of more, you know, covered up. Um, and then in my early twenties, when I was finishing up my RD education and I got a little bit more interested in, you know, natural holistic health, I wanted to get off the birth control pill. And as many do, I had a lot of problems getting off the pill. 
Um, and that's sort of when all of those symptoms kind of reared their ugly head. I had really struggled with weight gain. I gained quite a bit of weight very quickly after getting off the pill, um, which some people expect to lose weight. Um, of course, much of that hormonal acne returned. I had hair loss and then I had irregular periods. So when I got some workup um, from a doctor, I did have presence of cysts on my ovaries and I had elevated testosterone. So I sort of had the entire trifecta of that Rotterdam criteria for um, diagnosis. One of the things that can be difficult though is if as many women our age have been off and on the pill or the IUD for many years, you know, those, it's more difficult to get a diagnosis because many people don't understand, you know, if you were on the birth control pill, you're not ovulating. Therefore, you're probably not making those cysts, which is one of the reasons conventional medical literature will tell you to put someone on the pill for birth control. But that's sort of what muddles the water, muddies the water, I should say, um, of getting a proper diagnosis if you've been off and on these medications, because it can kind of, you know, it, it masks some of the actual picture that would take place if none of those medications had been brought on board. So I kind of had all of them when I was first diagnosed um, and that was in my early 20s. And I made the decision to try and kind of balance everything out naturally. Um, and that was sort of how my journey began. Yeah, and I think that's a journey that a lot of us can relate with. Like, And it's hard to know too when you're coming off the pill, like is it just from coming off the pill and being in a long time? Was there something else that was being covered up? Because I had a lot of similar symptoms when I came off because I, I would think we're about the same age and I was on it for like 12 years. When I came off of it, I had the acne, hair loss, all of these things, which eventually subsided, but they couldn't decipher my labs for like a year because the medication was still in my body. Right. And there is almost this like post-pill PCOS-like symptom that some women can get. I think the big differentiator of that is before you were on the pill, did you ever have issues? So, you know, if you're looking back into your teenage years and you always struggled with these symptoms, um, you know, and you, then you get off the pill and you're having issues, it might, you know, that means more towards traditional PCOS or you were always fine, you get off the pill and you have some issues, and, you know, that might just be naturally coming off of the hormones. So there is some gray area there for sure. Um, with your diagnosis, did you have to go to a lot of different doctors? Were you able to find one really good doctor? What was your experience like in the healthcare system? Yeah, so I um, did not have a hard time, mostly because my picture was so very clear. Um, I pretty much got this all from a gynecologist. I also had a good dermatologist at the time that I really liked that kind of helped with. She actually was the one that did the hormone testing, not the gynecologist which is sort of interesting, which is because you would think it would be the opposite way around. Um, so I didn't have a very hard time. I do think though, going to your women's health provider is usually the best bet. Yeah, that's really cool that your dermatologist is the one that did the testing because that's not what I would have guessed. I would have, but dermatologists yeah. are really intuitive. I've had some really good ones. Yeah, so this was, I was doing my graduate degree in Cleveland. So this was at the Cleveland Clinic. It was actually a hair loss center. So these were like some of the best hair loss doctors in the country. So I think they were very like up to date with lab testing. And she was the one that actually told me I should get tested for PCOS and did the testing. So, you know, you might not unfortunately get that at your run of the mill dermatologist. This was like, a, I was, I was doing my training in a very specialized center. So I had access to, you know, some great physicians. Yeah. That's so awesome that you were there and you can have it like all done all in house. Okay. So there are a lot of misconceptions about PCOS. You've already touched on a few of them. Um, 
whether it comes to diagnostic or what you need to do after. Um, what were some things that after you were diagnosed, you were like, okay, I'm a healthcare professional and I know all of these things, but how did you decipher between what was fact and what was fiction? Yeah. Um, and it's even hard today, you know, when you look at influencers and they market certain things is really appealing. Look, even now, even with all the knowledge I have, I can get my, get wrapped up in things. So that's very difficult. Um, I guess some of the biggest misconceptions for PCOS is one, um, that you absolutely have to be gluten or dairy free. And I think I've seen that more so just because of some of the narratives on TikTok within the last couple of years. I don't even know if that was so um, prevailing in the talk about PCOS even just three years ago. Um, but that's definitely not necessarily true. You know, many people see benefits from going gluten and dairy free because if you think about gluten containing foods, it's pasta, it's bread, um, it's crackers, it's highly processed carbohydrate foods for the most part. And most women have some component of insulin resistance with their PCOS. So they naturally end up eating less insulogenic foods when they cut out dairy and gluten, but it's not necessarily those components that are always causing the problem for people. So I'd say that's the biggest misconception. The other is that um, there is one supplement to cure PCOS or that supplements themselves will be the answer. Um, I think there's so much more lifestyle and food as medicine things that should be going on first and foremost than supplements. You know, my concern is with supplements is if you get it on a elaborate supplement routine, you know, that's 70 to 80 to $100 a month, right? And PCOS is a chronic condition. So how I like to think about things is if you're going to, you have to look at what you're doing and say, am I going to be able to do this when I am 35, when I am 40, when I am 45, right? Because these predispositions to PCOS and the other conditions that come along with it, such as heart disease and diabetes are not going to go away. So um, that's how I like to think of anything that you're doing. Am I going to be able to keep up this $80 supplement routine for 30 years? Probably not. So um, keeping things really minimal with supplements would be the um, other kind of misconception I see a lot. I think that's such a good point too, because it is this fine line in the wellness industry. And like, obviously everyone who listens to our podcast, like knows we're in the wellness industry. We really talk about a lot is like, you have to be very open, transparent and conscious, like with your consumption of supplements, because also like, what's the long-term impact of that supplement? We probably don't know. And so, yeah, it's a really good point to bring up. And I think that it's a really good filter of like, can I do this? for the foreseeable future? Like what is the financial impact of this? Um, because we've really lost sight of food. Like, you know, like food is medicine and diet and lifestyle and sleep and all of these things that can be beneficial for free. Um, but I was gonna ask about gluten and dairy. I figured, yeah. I was like, I'm sure that she gets asked that a lot. Yeah, and we can talk more about it. I was actually um, doing a little prep for a TikTok I was gonna film because I think a lot about this study. There was a research study that they did, that the researchers at Harvard did on 18,000 women in the early 2000s. And it was an observational study pretty much over eight years where they observed, it, it was women that were all trying to get pregnant. Um, meaning, you know, they ideally have optimal fertility and balanced hormones. And they did, noticed there were certain themes about eating behaviors that highly increased the risk of, or decreased the risk of having infertility issues. 
So the main ones are kind of obvious. They ate high fiber foods, they exercise, they had ate a lot of foods that were higher in iron. But the one that actually people love to ignore is that they consumed more high fat dairy products. Um, women that consumed high fat dairy products were actually less likely to struggle with infertility issues. So, and I have never, and that was 18,000 women, and I have never seen a specific trial or observational study talking about dairy use decreasing or increasing infertility risks. So I think it's kind of um, blown a little bit out of proportion. Yeah, it's interesting that you were going to do TikTok on that because I'm preparing a presentation right now on fertility and fertility um, and like what the research actually says about it. And I feel like every time I give the presentation, people are shocked that it's like, high. And like exactly said, the Mediterranean diet is the only, and I hate to call it a diet, but like only way of eating that's actually linked to increased fertility. But the premise of it is high fiber, you know, good lean proteins, whole grains, like it's basically a balanced diet. So- Thanks for pointing that out. And that, I've actually haven't read that study yet. So I need to read that because 18,000 women, that's amazing. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, there's a very big difference between a, so let's talk about like a gluten and dairy breakfast, right? A dare, a breakfast that you go to Starbucks and you get like a big vanilla ice latte that has a ton of sugar in it from the vanilla, maybe skim milk, which is naturally higher in carbohydrates and a croissant having gluten, right? That's gluten and dairy breakfast versus a piece of whole wheat bread or sourdough bread and two scrambled eggs and half of an avocado, right? That is a very different, oh, with a sprinkle of, you know, cheddar cheese, right? So that is a very different breakfast, both containing gluten and dairy. So it, that's, it's not black and white. Would I, I t recommend the first breakfast? No. Um, but that's where it's certainly not all, you know, one size fits all with that recommendation. Yeah. And that kind of like segues perfectly into blood sugar. So insulin resistance is something that often comes in tandem with PCOS. Um, and you touched on that a little bit, like not every breakfast is created equal. Um, could you share some just like tips or how you look at blood sugar balance in a more practical sense? Like we can look at the science of it, but how do you look at it on a daily basis? Like when you're prepping your meals? Yeah. So many women with PCOS have some sort of insulin resistance, um, even if they do not show signs of like an elevated hemoglobin A1C on lab work or things of that nature. Um, the other thing is, even if you don't have insulin resistance, it's still beneficial to focus on blood sugar balancing meals because it makes you feel good. It, you know, makes your hunger hormones less crazy. So you know, I get a lot of questions and comments about that, but all of these recommendations are universal to everybody, not just women with PCOS. Um, but I guess when I am thinking about um, blood sugar, you know, the main macronutrients being carbohydrates, fat, and protein. Fat and protein are the macronutrients that raise the blood sugar less. Protein can a little bit, fat does not. And then carbs do raise the blood sugar. So you want to have kind of a nice balance. Um, and when you are eating carbohydrates, I like for them to be paired with a fiber or paired with um, a source of fat. The best being picking a carb source that has a lot of fiber in it. For example, um, blackberries, raspberries, blueberries are a carb, but they also have quite a bit of fiber in them. So I like to think of it that way. I especially like people to pair these with proteins because it makes you feel much fuller for longer. It decreases the blood sugar spikes 
Um, and there's evidence that eating a high protein, high fiber breakfast actually decreases blood sugar spikes with subsequent meals with lunch and dinner as well. So it's really important, I think, to kind of start the day on a good note with those things. Yeah. And breakfast, like you're laying the foundation for what the rest of your day is going to be. Have you seen, it's pretty, it's pretty recent research and it's not like the hugest sample size, but they talked about the order of how you eat the food and how it can impact your blood sugar. I thought that was really interesting. It's not something I'd ever really thought about before. Yeah. So include eating the fat and fiber rich foods first can decrease the postprandial glucose for sure. Um, there's also evidence that like eating you know, greens and fiber-rich salads before the meal can decrease the postprandial glucose spike. Um, so that is definitely important. I think more so, I mean, I want people to live their life normally, right? So I think there's things that you can add into your life, like a salad before a meal or eating your greens first, but I definitely don't want somebody like micromanaging all their, the order of everything on their plate. Like, you know, you might want to just take a bite of the potatoes and this, you know, it, that's fine. Like, I don't want people to get crazy about things like this because exactly, are you going to do, are you going to pay attention to the order you eat your meals for 30 years? Probably not. No. And then if you are like, is that going to cause other issues and other stress? Like the second it turns into causing stress is when it's actually going to be doing the opposite. Right. Um, okay. So you have some cool seed cycling videos. So I'm always interested, how did you get introduced to seed cycling? Yeah. So I've always kind of been aware of seed cycling, but I hadn't paid too much attention to it, mostly because like, it seems like just another thing to add into my life. Um, but last, so I, for the last like three, four five years, I've had very balanced menstrual cycles, um, you know, 30 day cycles. I like to think that my PCOS is sort of in remission. Um, but I got married last May. So May of 2021, I was supposed to be a 2020 bride. So it was like a pushed back wedding and it was very, we got, it was, we ended up getting married in May outside. It was like right after most people had been vaccinated. So it, it ended up being very safe, but I was so anxious. I had bought my wedding dress like two years before. So I had had some weight fluctuations during COVID. So long story short, I was trying to lose some weight. I was under a lot of stress. So 2021, I think my periods went a little bit haywire. I was pretty much like ovulating and then spotting the entire time till my period, which was a sign to me I was not making enough progesterone. So I kind of wanted to turn it up a little bit, not uh, turn it up a little bit with some of the like menstrual regulation things I was doing. And at the time I had read Alyssa Vitti's book in the flow. She's, you know, one of the main women in this space that talks about sort of cycle syncing and balancing your hormones naturally. And she's very into, you know, seed cycling. So I sort of said, you know, why not? Um, and I started adding it into my life last summer, I would say. And I have for the most part, kind of fix that spotting problem. So I cannot say 100% that was related to the seed cycling because I also, the wedding was no longer on. I definitely put a little bit of weight back on after the wedding, was not under stress. So, you know, it was probably a combination of things. Um, so my favorite way to include seed cycle, so I you do a lot of smoothies. So for a while, I was sort of just mixing up the seed blends, like, per the cycle or the time and like just putting those in my smoothies that day. Um, but recently I've been making like little snack balls with them and that's been my afternoon snack. That's sort of been my vibe the last couple of weeks. 
I saw, I think, is it the lemon, um, the lemon balls? I have to try that recipe. It looks amazing. They're so good. You know what? So I, they're by, they're by this, um, she's a blogger, Joy the Baker. Yes. And she, yes. And she also has a like flax and pumpkin seed one. But I wonder, I kept like commenting on my video, like the recipe is Joy the Baker. And for whatever reason, people kept saying they couldn't see the comments, which makes me think maybe she like has her name blocked on TikTok or something. Like maybe she didn't want to make, I don't know, like it, because I asked my friend, can you see any of the comments where I'm commenting Joy the Baker? And she could not. And then I commented just the recipe and it worked. So I was like, maybe she doesn't want to be putting these videos on TikTok. I don't know. But th those are the recipes that I have been using. There's a lemon one for the second half of the cycle. And the first one's more just like cinnamony, but they're really good. And I think that's a really good afternoon snack as well. Yeah, I saw that when I was like scrolling through and I'm like, wait, I love anything that's like lemon, like a lemon, like sweet flavor. So very excited to try that. Um, all right. So non-toxic living is another cool thing. Um, you can basically tell I went through your TikTok and I'm like, wait, these are all the cool things I want to talk about because I love what she's doing. So Non-toxic living, I think, is something that can be overwhelming, but also is really underrated when it comes to hormone balance and PCOS. So can you tell us kind of how you got into that, figured out that that impacted it, and then how you made it, like you said, attainable, something that you can do 30 years from now? Yeah. So uh, when I was getting into, like, right when I got diagnosed was very much the time period where clean beauty was becoming more mainstream. There were so many more brands. People were just becoming much more aware of all that stuff. And for the most part, nobody talked about that in wellness. I had always been interested in the wellness space. Nobody was talking about what makeup you used in like 2010, you know, 12. So 2014, 15, people really started paying attention to this. So I did, it was right at the time that I got diagnosed with PCOS. So I, you know, definitely started thinking about it more but it can be overwhelming and really anxiety inducing. So for some people it's like, this is all hogwash. Like this is just, I don't know, you know, like it's super hippy dippy or people are like so paranoid and anxious about it. And what the thing is like, there absolutely is research that bisphenols and BPA phthalates in artificial fragrances in the home can and probably are contributing to all of the new diagnoses of endocrine conditions that are happening in our country. So it's absolutely scientific that there is there, that it's there. Um, honestly, I think that that's one of the easiest things to do because once you swap out all those home care products, you have swapped them out. So like for cleaning products, um, I really use a lot of, like I use a lot of baking soda and vinegar and just make my own things. Like that's way cheaper than a lot of cleaning products. The other, the brand that I recommend most often is Branch Basics, um, which many people are aware of just because it's fragrance-free. It goes a long way. Um, but those things are really important, creating kind of a healthy home environment. The biggest thing that bums people out is I do recommend getting rid of candles, like Bath & Body Works candles um, for breeze and scent diffusers within the home. I do think that probably adds a lot of toxic burden to people's life. Um, how I like to look at it is, you know, we absolutely cannot control everything, right? You go to work, you cannot control what they use at work. You can't control the air, the water, the cleaning stuff, right? So we can do the best we can to make our homes kind of like an oasis um, that are supporting our bodies. And then when you're out of the home, you know, release that sort of thing. 
because you still want to be able to live your life. You know, I got to a point one time that I was so anxious about the water I was drinking at a restaurant, right? I don't want anybody to feel that way. I want you to be able to go out with friends and just drink the water. (laughs) But if you want to filter your water at home, that's absolutely like a good decision for your health. Um, So that's the biggest thing with cleaning supplies, with food storage, glass storage is best, stainless steel storage. That's another one where once you swap those out, like you might spend $50 on that sort of stuff. It's pretty affordable at this point. And then you have that for like ever. So um, that's the other, like I think some of the Pyrex glass salad things that I bought when I first went on, started on this like seven years ago, I still am using, so... Yeah, that's a good point. I went crazy. Probably we had a very similar timeline around like 2015 and I threw everything away in my house, which was such a mistake. So like you can replace things too, like as you need, like you don't have to go crazy and throw out like every plastic thing in your cabinet. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So being swapping things out over time. Um, but the home stuff I do think can make a really big difference. Um, But then, you know, how I like to think of like body care, makeup care, hair care is I like to take almost like an 80-20 approach with that because I love makeup. There's always gorgeous makeup things that I want to try out, right? And do I really think like the eyeshadow you use once a week is going to do you in? Like, no. So, you know, allowing yourself to enjoy stuff you like, like I love Charlotte Tilbury. Charlotte Tilbury is definitely not, you know, clean or whatever, but um, you know, what I'm using in the shower and slathering all over my body for body lotion. Yeah. I'm going to try and make those, you know, fragrance free and healthy for my hormones. Yeah. I think those are great tips. I love, like, it's really nice to hear a balanced approach and a balanced mindset around it because it can be so intoxicating almost to jump in and like do everything, but you have to like do it sustainable, which I think you do a really great job of sharing. Yeah. And I was even having a conversation with one of my friends the other day. She's like, can you remind me the problems with aluminum-based deodorants? Because she's like, tried a million natural deodorants, gives her a rash every time. And I was like, I mean, you're not smoking. You're not, you know, the biggest causes of cancer and disease in this country are smoking, obesity, and alcohol use. And like, so focus on those three. Focus on your water quality, your air quality. Like, you know, we can't, everything can't be perfect. Um, And I think a lot of it is capitalism selling fear, trying to make people buy more products. You know, I get into this for like hours. (laughs) I could talk about this for hours. So I'm here. And like a lot of people ask me too, like, yeah, what is this thing again? And I have to like say, you know, those three things you mentioned are something that most people partake, like, I gave up alcohol last year and it was so interesting. This is like such a side tangent. It was interesting. And I still drink a little bit now, but how ingrained it was into my like day-to-day social life. I couldn't even believe it. And like, that's an industry that we don't even talk about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, You know, alcohol is responsible for 10% of cancers in our country. Um, But the thing is, there is no capitalistic way to sell abstinence, right? There is no product, I guess, unless you were doing like non-alcoholic mixers, but that's still pretty niche. Like there's no way to sell that. The fear of not drinking does not sell something. So nobody talks about it, right? So that's something to think about for sure. Whenever you get anxious about, whenever someone is telling you something and you're feeling really anxious about it, like one, are they selling something to me? What is the motivation to sell this fear? Um, 
because there's things we absolutely need to be cognizant of, but kind of keeping perspective is definitely important. But yeah, alcohol culture is big in our country and everyone likes to conveniently forget it's like the most modifiable risk factor for disease as well. So I know because it's like, no one wants to hear it when you're like, well, like you could cut back. And they're like, no, 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 no. I'm just going to change my deodorant. I'm like, okay. Right, right. You do you, whatever works for you. Um, Okay. Anything else, like anything you're seeing on TikTok or like that's not even related to this interview or anything you're just like, man, I want one second to explain this or talk about this. Um, I'm trying to think. I I guess I just, um, one thing that's definitely difficult, at least even for me as a creator, is like one of the, if I really am feeling, of course, everybody goes through times where their pants are a little bit tight and they're like, oh, you know, maybe I've, I need to like work out a little bit more, go for more walks or eat a little bit healthier. Everyone gets those feelings. And I think one of the most important things to do when that happens is pull back and just keep things really simple. Um, but if you go on TikTok, like everyone is making like the most creative recipes and just like doing the most all the time. And sometimes it's like, okay, maybe just you know, have like a big salad and a big glass of iced tea and go for a walk. And those things are just not as, they're not as sexy. They don't sell as well. So that's one thing that's hard as like a creator, because that's honestly how I live my life. Most of the time I try and keep things very simple. Um, but then as a consumer, you know, you see the most all the time on your TikTok and on your Instagram when, you know, success for most people does not look like that. Most meals aren't that pretty. And things of that nature. I think that's a really good call out because like I love to cook and like, you know, I'm a dietitian. I do recipe creation. It was my job like before this and I get on TikTok and I'm like, I can't make that. Like uh, that's too many ingredients, too much. So it's expensive. Like when you try to buy like a recipe that has like 20 ingredients in it, it's like, it gets expensive. Right, right. Yeah. So that's one thing that's hard for me because I try and share a lot, but like for the most part, nine times out of 10, my lunch is like, I like to have a big salad every day for lunch with a bunch of different veggies, but then I just throw like ran, like today I had some extra roasted vegetables. I threw that in there and it like doesn't, you can't make a recipe video with that. Right. But it makes me feel great. I eat get a lot of fiber. I get some protein and like, that's good. And it takes me two seconds, but that's not going to end up on your algorithm. So, right. So you see like these curated videos that take a long time for people to produce um, which you don't have to necessarily make your life look like that for it to be successful. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. Um, of course. Yeah. And if you guys like this episode, um, leave a review, comment, let us know. There's going to be show notes and links. So you'll be able to find Hannah and the Conscious Nutritionist. We'll link all of her socials on there and her website. So thank you guys for tuning in.